I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I guess, yeah, it, I, in a conventional sense, what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But I guess in the broader, I guess, reality of what Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is, the fact is the, I, I spend the majority of my time talking about just comics as opposed to movies and TV shows. And in relation to that, today, well, today is no different. For you see, I'm continuing my series that I started in my last episode. I'm continuing my series all about the Batman storyline entitled Hush. Now, I guess in the interest of full disclosure, it does need to be said that there's a degree to which I don't really consider Hush to be the definitive Batman story, all right? A lot of people out there do consider this to be basically everything that you need to know about Batman condensed down to what amounts to just a handful of issues of the Batman comic. I mean, the monthly comic book called Batman, right? There's an entire contingent of Batman fans that put this storyline ahead of everything. Now, there was a time, I must be honest, there was a time when I truly did look down my nose at Hush. And what sort of started changing that, I got into a little bit more detail with this in the last episode, but what started, I guess, shifting that and changing that and sort of altering my perception of Hush and what, you know, as a storyline, not so much Hush the character, but Hush as a storyline, what really began sort of altering my view about this is what I kind of came to understand was this storyline, you could view it as sort of like the series finale for what I at least consider to be my Batman, right? If you think of comics as being most comparable to TV, which is basically my view, if you view comics as being most similar to TV, what you 
kind of realizes that there's a season, or rather there's a series premiere, and then there's a series finale. Now, the series finale need not necessarily be the end of the story. This is just the end of the storyline that whoever is telling, right? And so, as it goes for Batman, this isn't necessarily the end of Batman in my headcanon, but this is as good a series finale as anything, right? So we need to make a little bit of a distinction there, if, since we're kind of running with a little bit of a TV metaphor here. We do need to make a little bit of a distinction in that the way I view the end of Batman, that doesn't really happen in Hush. Now, like I say, this does work great as a series finale because it does leave this Batman, this iteration of Batman's future to the imagination in one sense you know there are a lot of changes that have been made to the status quo and 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 whatnot but at the end of the day this doesn't necessarily give you the end of the story this just gives you the end of the storyline make sense anyway so now in the last issue which is to say this was Batman number 609. In the last issue, we pretty much left off with Bruce Wayne undergoing brain surgery to save his life, and it required that he call up his childhood friend, Thomas Elliot, to perform the operation. So, as it goes for today, I'm going to be talking about Batman number 610 and 611. Now, to begin with, Batman number 610... Cover date is February 2003. On sale date is December the 26th, 2002. Cover price is $225. Writer is Jeff Loeb. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. Letterer is Richard Starkings. Colorist is Alex Sinclair. Story is entitled The Beast. Story synopsis is as follows. Killer Croc has been taken to Arkham Asylum. Batman visits his Electro cell and tries to figure out who put Croc up to kidnapping the Lamont boy. Further, he needs to determine what happened to the ransom money. Croc is more beastly than ever and he refuses to say anything. He breaks free of the Electro cell and attacks Batman. He easily mangles Batman and the guards and then makes his escape. Amanda Waller of the Office of Metahuman Affairs arrives and tells Batman that he has until midnight to find and then stop Croc, or else she and her people are going to move in. Batman and Waller do not have a good working relationship with one another, as might be obvious. That evening, Dr. Thomas Elliot visits Wayne Manor. Bruce is out looking for Croc as Batman, and has instructed Alfred to tell Thomas that he isn't home. Alfred hasn't seen Thomas since he was a child and recalls the night that Thomas's father died in an auto accident when he was very young. Moments later, Batman scours the streets of Gotham in the Batmobile looking for signs of Croc when a gunshot is fired and the Batmobile blows a wheel, sending the car into a crash. The Batmobile's tires are specially treated and shouldn't blow out under any circumstances. Batman manages to come out of the car unharmed and tells Oracle to continue tracking the signal device that's been implanted into Killer Croc's spine. Meanwhile, Killer Croc traces the money trail back to Catwoman, who's looking for clues in Poison Ivy's greenhouse apartment. He breaks through the greenhouse windows and attacks her. 
Batman arrives and tells Croc that they're both being manipulated. Croc reveals that he wanted the ransom money to fix his current physical condition, but before Batman can get any further with him, Waller's people arrive in helicopters and spring electrical nets on top of Killer Croc. They swoop him up and take, a, and take off with him. From across the street, the mysterious figure watches everything that's happening from the shadows. You know, 90s style. Some nights later, Catwoman tells Batman that she's found Poison Ivy, has moved to Metropolis, and she wants to track Ivy down to her safe house there. Catwoman thanks Batman for saving her, and she demonstrates her gratitude by kissing him. Feeling the solitude in his life, Batman kisses Catwoman back, and they share a passionate moment. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, for starters... I really don't understand why people put those goddamn fart pipes on their car. You know, you've got this little piece of shit four-banger engine, and you have people who are adding fart pipes to it like they're in fucking Fast and the Furious, and I, it's... Look, asshole, you're not Vin goddamn Diesel, okay? You aren't, you never were, you never will be. All you are is an annoying fucking piece of shit who... Okay, whatever. I don't mean, like, rant or anything, but you have... You, I have no idea what you guys can hear in the background here, but it sounds like I'm in the middle of a fucking Fast and the Furious movie because of the fact that I've got all these dipshits driving by with their fucking piece of shit exhaust system on their on their Honda Civic. Yeah, you know, if there's anything that like a real street racer lives in pathological fucking fear of, it's a hopped up Honda Civic, dude. <sighs> that felt good. To finally start talking about the comic book here because it's I, again i have no idea what you guys are hearing in the background here but i've been trying to record this shit for something like an hour now and i keep getting interrupted by lawnmowers by wannabe street racers all this other fucking retarded bullshit it's it's really aggravating so anyway the cover it's uh, basically killer croc he's trying to take a bite out of batman and this is one of those covers that finds some amount of literal fulfillment in this issue and so a cover being representative literally of a of a comic book that's not something that I necessarily demand of covers but when it happens you know I I must say I do somewhat appreciate it. So there you go. Um to the best of my knowledge there really aren't any variant covers for this which I think actually makes it a little bit unique in this storyline and that a lot of these things have been reprinted so fucking many times and most of them were given variant covers that to find that there's only one cover that's actually kind of refreshing so anyway getting into the actual story though the issue kicks off with killer croc and batman basically talking it out while croc is in his cell at arkham asylum and what i kind of like is the fact that there's a degree to which batman is somewhat playing croc here not much but noticeably it's this isn't really intended to be like an official investigation there's batman is somewhat trying to wind croc up here in all of this because there comes a point in and this is actually on page two where batman says he's becoming agitated i would douse him if i were you and it's right here, actually, on pages two and three. This is something I probably should have mentioned in the last episode, but it just sort of got away from me. What you see a lot in this in this storyline here 
is basically a sort of a two-page layout that Jim Lee seems to have an affection for using. He has a panel on the far left and then a panel on the far right. And in the middle, there are two panels stacked one on top of the other. And so what this does is it, it creates negative space on the page. And the negative space, you could view this as, in a, a sense, a kind of layout type of foreshadowing indicating the letter H. It shapes it shapes the, the negative space here. It basically makes a, uh, an H shape. And so, hush. Anyway, so I don't actually know if that was done on purpose. I mean, a lot of time, care, and, and attention to detail was put into these issues. And so you could make, I think, a pretty realistic argument that this is, in fact, foreshadowing leading back to hush, but maybe not. So I'm not really sure. It's it's just sort of interesting, I guess. Is Anyway, so from there, Co uh, Killer Croc basically smashes his way out of his uh, out of his cell. He seems to take Batman down, but not really. I mean, Batman basically he's I don't want to go so far as to say he's throwing the fight, but he's not necessarily fighting to win here. He basically wants to put up. Uh, enough of a fight to make it convincing for Croc so that when he escapes, he's going to think that this is a real escape. It's not going to dawn on him that he's being in, he's being played, I guess is, is what I'm saying. And Batman's in, uh, internal monologue somewhat gives a lot of that away. Batman thinks to himself, I need to know who orchestrated the kidnapping taught my enemy new methods and what happened to the money. And it becomes pretty clear after that, that Batman's agenda here basically is to allow Croc to escape quote unquote, and basically follow him back to whoever is leading the charge on all of this. And it's right around here that Amanda Waller wanders in and pretty much dresses Batman down. She, tells Batman that she doesn't like him, and he pretty much responds that the feeling there is mutual. And as you... I, look, I don't know about any of the rest of you, but I have not been able to read anything involving Amanda Waller since the advent of Justice League Unlimited. I haven't really been able to read anything involving Amanda Waller without hearing in my head as I read her dialogue the voice of CCH Pounder. So... I don't think I'm all that unique in that regard. It's it's kind of funny. Sometimes a voice actor can come along and just so perfectly uh, encapsulate a character that it's almost like you can never hear <clears throat> you can never hear anybody else's voice doing that character ever again. You know, and a prime example that I think a lot of people think of when when they think of that sort of a paradigm, is Kevin Conroy as Batman. And who am I to argue with him? Or another one is Mark Hamill as the Joker. Now, that one I would take a little bit of exception to in that Hamill's good. And I'd even go so far as to say he may even be definitive. But the Joker has had another really well-done voice. And that is, I, I, I'm honestly, I'm blanking on the voice actor's name, but the guy who voiced the Joker in uh, Batman the Brave and the Bold, 
that was a good Joker voice. Now, that's a Joker voice that I think is meant to work in inside of a specific uh, interpretation of the Joker. You know, that's one take, and that's not necessarily universal. Whereas, you know, Mark Hamill's version of the Joker, he can be as as murderous and dark and gritty as you want him to be, or he can be a little bit more, I guess, freewheeling and somewhat lighthearted. He can be all of those things. And so, I don't know. I'm, my point is to say, though, that there there's not just one good Joker voice out there. But honestly, I haven't really heard Amanda Waller voiced by all that much, but I think CCH Pounder has been the one who's probably most famous for voicing Amanda Waller, but I don't think she's the only one. I think there have been one or two or three other actors and voice actors, uh, or voice, uh, well, I guess I should say actresses and voice actresses who have in some way or another portrayed Amanda Waller, and they're just not as memorable to me for whatever reason as CCH Pounder. So make of that whatever you want. So, moving on to the next page, basically Thomas Elliot swings by Wayne Manor wanting to pay Bruce a visit. Alfred basically has to uh, find a polite way of saying, you know, fuck off, he's not here. After which, Alfred has a little bit of a flashback to the night that Thomas Elliot's father died. And the thing about this that's, I guess, kind of heartbreaking is the fact that young Bruce says, my dad is in there, Tommy. Nothing bad is going to happen. And it kind of speaks to the fact that Bruce has the utmost confidence in his father's abilities. And the reality of the situation is, for as good as Thomas Wayne might have been, he's not God. He's not perfect. And there are certain things that even the best surgeon in the world can't do. There are certain lives even he can't save. And it's like that just doesn't seem to filter into Bruce's imagination, at least not visibly. Now, another way of reading this is the is that Bruce basically doesn't want Tommy to give up hope. So Bruce knows exactly or I guess has a decent idea that it's at least theoretically possible that Tommy's dad it could be a goner. I mean, it's not necessarily an absolute that just because Thomas Wayne is in the operating room that Tommy's dad is going to make it, you know? And he could just be putting on a brave face for Tommy because he wants Tommy to put on a brave face. That's another way of looking at it. But honestly, the way I prefer to look at it is Bruce, at that time in his life, really did buy into that. He truly believed that just by virtue of Thomas Wayne being there, that's it. That's the end of the story. Show's over and Tommy's dad is as good as saved. And that may not necessarily be true, which is a way of foreshadowing and saying, no, it's not true. The guy died on the operating table in spite of the fact that Thomas Wayne actually gave it his best effort. So Tommy, I think the clinical expression for this is lost his shit over that and punched Bruce full in the face. And Thomas Wayne ignores that entirely and makes a beeline for Tommy and just hugs hugs him and tries to make everything okay as best he can. And young Bruce, having just been punched in the face, he says, what'd you do that for? And Thomas Wayne says, Bruce, be quiet. And that is a little bit of a callback to 
And it's a little bit of a callback to uh, Batman number uh, uh, 608, where Bruce tells the Lamont boy, be quiet. And it's one of the things that tends to get done in a lot of these flashbacks to Bruce's childhood that tend to involve Thomas Wayne is that Thomas Wayne tends to be portrayed as a little bit of a saint. He always says the right thing. He always does the right thing. And it's pretty rare in these types of flashbacks for Thomas Wayne to be shown to have feet of clay. But that's basically what we're seeing here. First, Thomas couldn't save Tommy's dad. So there's that. The other thing is, he doesn't necessarily mollify Bruce or or go out of his way to be, I don't know, too comforting. He basically says, Bruce, be quiet. And, you know, neither of these are necessarily negative reflections on Thomas's character, but it is a little bit, it, it does make him a little bit less Gandhi the way he tends to be portrayed in a lot of these flashbacks. And so my purpose in saying all of this is the fact that I approve, all right? I, I just like the fact that Thomas Wayne is shown to have limitations. You know, he has flaws and shortcomings. There are certain things even he can't overcome. And this is one of them, you know? And it just, I don't know, it works for me. So, anyway, moving on to the next page. Batman is pursuing Killer Croc through the streets of Gotham when a bullet takes out one of the tires in his Batmobile. And the thing is, this should, this should not be possible. You know, the the uh, the Batmobile and Batman even says this. It's got a shit ton of protection going for it. It's got Kevlar reinforced tires and they're filled with petroleum jelly. And this is the sort of tire that they used to use in presidential motorcades or armored cars. And the idea here is that it makes blowouts next door to impossible. You know, and it happened anyway. So what the fuck? But before we even get into that. You know, I just like this Batmobile. I mean, I get the idea this is supposed to be uh, based on a uh, Lamborghini. And, I mean, it's just, you know, the lines and the curves to it and everything. It it basically, it looks to me like this is supposed to be s- not necessarily modeled directly on a Lamborghini Murcielago because I, it's just the way that Jim Lee draws everything. It's supposed to look like it's supposed to remind you of something but it's not necess- it's not necessarily supposed to be that thing but i would honestly be shocked if his inspiration for the batmobile was something other than a lamborghini murcielago so there there's really no deeper meaning to that i just wanted to toss that out there and see what comes back to me so and being as this is 2003 i do believe the the Mercy Lago was the was the main um, Lamborghini vehicle that was being that was being manufactured at that time. And I'm really <clears throat> I'm not trying to beat this to death, but the main re or one of the main reasons why I think Mercy Lago the the uh, Mercy Lago is the inspiration for the Batmobile is that is the fact that. In Spanish, Murcielago means bat. So, just something to keep in mind there. So, anyway, um, 
this really does play to Jim Lee's strengths as a penciler, or at least some of his strengths as a penciler. You know, you've got Gotham City with these impossibly dark buildings, um, or this just impossibly dark sky with these impossibly uh, uh, tall buildings, and there's just this general air of urban decay, I suppose. Then the Batmobile gets taken out, and it does these just mega uh rolls it just flips over side to or sorry uh end to end it just does end to end flips and that kind of stuff it just it that's not the only thing that jim lee does really well but it is something that he does really well it does need to be said and so and and the part of the the part of me that has some idea like a basic idea of probably how much this batmobile costs because when you think about the base price of what a Lamborghini Murcielago is, combined with what Batman did to modify the damn thing, it's you're within your rights to to suggest this car cost half a million dollars, or maybe even more than that, and it it's now just a giant fucking paperweight. So hmm. anyway, so Killer Croc makes his way to Poison Ivy's greenhouse where he finds. Uh, Catwoman lurking around. And at this point, I mean, I think you could fairly well say that Killer Croc is pretty much out of reach. Waylon Jones is basically gone. <clears throat> and all that's really left now, it, m- more and more and more, and all that's left is the Beast. You know, Killer Croc himself, you know? And he's losing more and more of his humanity. So... This is what I'm saying is this is a pretty fucking dangerous fight for Catwoman. So luckily, Batman intervenes and basically finds a way to put Killer Croc, not necessarily, I guess, put him down, but definitely restrain him, at least for the time being, so that they can have it out with each other. And Batman basically wants to know, well, actually, first he wants Croc to know we are all being played here against each other. And Croc basically confesses what exactly he's up to with wanting wanting this money. You know, he basically is looking for a cure to his condition because he knows it's getting worse. And it is indeed getting worse. And so, wouldn't you know, Amanda Waller's uh, agents, I suppose, they choose that moment to make their move. Because as Batman himself points out, it's after midnight. So he actually missed the deadline that Waller gave him. So Batman's really got no choice but to fight against Croc. And then after a while, Waller's guys end up having to get involved and take Croc down, which is precisely what happens. As all of this is going on, Batman looks across a stormy rooftop. It's like he senses that he's being watched by the shadowy, mysterious figure from the shadows. He looks over and what he and he doesn't actually see anybody on the uh or at least it doesn't look like he sees anybody on the neighboring roof. So maybe he he's thinking to himself, maybe he's just imagining things. But again, this kind of speaks to attention to detail here, where, and this could actually be considered, at least the way I choose to view this, is misdirection. But the top of the of the building has these upright letters which spell out the word Robins. And considering some of the misdirection, because again, that's how I choose to view it, Considering some of the misdirection that happens in this story, that could be seen as important foreshadowing. So make of that whatever you will. So 
from there, Batman has his little moment with Catwoman, and they kiss in the moonlight. Now, the the thing is with this whole Batman Catwoman relationship is that it's it, it's part of the pre-crisis comics that Batman and Catwoman kind of had a thing for one another. And it's been done in Batman the Animated Series. It's been done in Batman Returns. And after this comic came out, Hush, after this story came out, about 10 years later, in fact, it was done in The Dark Knight Rises. And so this is an important aspect of the Batman-Catwoman relationship, right? Which is to say their romantic entanglements with one another. But all that stuff having been said, guys, I'm at a real loss to think of very many times in, in the post-crisis era when Batman and Catwoman, when that was a thing, you know? I mean, you may be able to find instances of them giving each other, you know, secret glances or stealing kisses or something like that, but the idea of an actual romance... Guys, I don't know if that was ever done in the post-crisis before Hush, you know? Maybe it was, and I just don't know about it. But I'm not a, I'm not really aware of it, you know? What I can more readily think of is them just not really having all that much to do with each other, apart from committing crimes and then getting sent to prison. Or maybe they do the occasional flirting and, and whatnot, but they don't really have a relationship. You understand? So, maybe I'm wrong. But this is... I, what I'm saying is the bigness of this moment wasn't lost on me simply because of the fact that I knew, or at least I believed, maybe I'm wrong, but I at least believe that there really wasn't much of a, ro of a, a romance between Batman and Catwoman prior to Hush, you know? And anyway, it, it, it's, it, it's honestly, it comes out of left field in the one, uh, on the one hand, but on the other hand, I mean, it's like the writing sort of establishes it. And you can you can even kind of hear Adrian Barbeau's voice in this dialogue when Catwoman says, we've done this dance for a long time. Too long. Aren't you at all curious? And she leans up and kisses him, you know? And I don't think Adrian Barbeau necessarily is the definitive Catwoman voice because I kind of happen to like Michelle Pfeiffer's kind of thick throaty, like, phone sex type of voice. You know, she definitely had a different voice as Catwoman than she did as Selina, you know? And that worked for me, because it was kind of of a piece with Michael Keaton using that kind of raspy voice for Batman, and then a, a more sort of soft-spoken, absent-minded type of voice for Bruce Wayne. And that that plays for me, you know? I like that. And <clears throat> And as I say, you know... I don't necessarily hear Michelle Pfeiffer's, like, phone sex voice in this dialogue. <clears throat> but this dialogue doesn't necessarily demand Adrian Barbeau either, you know? So it could go either way, just depending on how you want it to be, I suppose. So that, I think, is pretty much it for uh, Batman number 610. Now, as to Batman number 611, cover date is March 2003. On sale date is January twenty second, two thousand three. Cover price is two twenty five. Writer is Jeff Loeb. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. Letterer is Richard Starkings. Colorist is Alex Sinclair. Story title is The City. 
synopsis of which is as follows. Bruce Wayne flies to Metropolis. He needs to find Poison Ivy in order to, dis to discover and understand her involvement in the Edward Lamont ransom case. As he disembarks from the plane, he recalls the first time he came to Metropolis. As young children, Bruce Wayne and Thomas Elliot witnessed a fight between the original Green Lantern and the first Icicle. They disobeyed Thomas Wayne's instructions to remain by the limousine in so doing. Bruce visits his, uh, his newspaper, which is to say the Daily Planet, under the guise of checking in on his investment. But what he really wants to do is check up on Oracle's investigations. Lois Lane flirts with Bruce, but before she can learn anything from him, Perry White takes Bruce away. However, Bruce's thoughts are actually on the kiss that he shared with Catwoman the, pre the previous evening. At night, he drops by the LexCorp offices as Batman and speaks with CEO Talia Al Ghul, who calls herself Talia Head now. He inquires about a dangerous chemical compound that LexCorp dabbles in, a compound developed by Lamont Chemicals. Before Talia can speak at length, however, Batman is called away by Catwoman, who's in town as well and hot on the trail of Poison Ivy. Catwoman breaks into Poison Ivy's headquarters and pretends that she's still under her thrall, but Poison Ivy instantly recognizes the deception and the two begin fighting. Batman arrives seconds behind Catwoman and saves her from being strangled by one of Ivy's sentient vines. However, Poison Ivy has another notorious personage under her thrall, Superman. As the top of Ivy's greenhouse collapses, Superman is seen hovering, ready to protect Poison Ivy. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, from the outset, I gotta tell you, this cover... Again, another of these covers that didn't have a variant. This cover is... It's good, but this isn't the most memorable cover of the entire Hush storyline. Let's just be realistic here, you know? It's good. It does what it needs to do. It accomplishes what it needs to accomplish. In as much as it kind of teases the story, but it's a little bit more metaphorical. You know, this doesn't literally happen. You know, it's basically intended to foreshadow and give you a flavor of the story without actually giving away the story. So anyway, as to the actual story, it kicks off with Batman's plane, or sorry, Bruce's plane landing in Gotham, not Gotham City. Jeez, I'm fucking up all over the place here. So page one, just going to start all over again. Page one starts with Bruce's plane landing in Metropolis and basically saying that he tries to avoid coming here. And there aren't very many reasons for Batman to be in this city, but no one's going to really think twice about Bruce Wayne paying a visit. So as he's walked, as he's just kind of working through all of his thoughts here, one of the things that becomes sort of a prominent issue all through this issue is Bruce's mind constantly flashing back to the kiss he shared with Selena. And what becomes very important, uh, uh, apparent, I suppose, is that this wasn't done casually. And as this story progresses, in fact, we're going to find just how casual this isn't for Bruce. But all that's for future issues. And the here and now, you know, it's kind of hard. When I was reading this part of the story for the first time, it was sort of hard for me to separate this idea of Batman as a kind of love struck and sort of immature teenager 
that, wow, I kissed her. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened. You know, there's a lot more going on in Bruce's mind than just the fact that he may be getting some nookie nookie from from Catwoman, you know. So from there, we get into the flashback section from Bruce's childhood where he and Tommy basically, well, they witnessed Green Lantern, which is to say Alan Scott taking on Icicle. And I think it's kind of interesting that of all things, Jeff Loeb chose to situate this flashback as having occurred in Metropolis. And the reason I find that kind of weird in some ways, although sort of typical, is because of the fact that Alan Scott was situated in Gotham City to start with. You know, that was his city. But what I've noticed is that a lot of Batman fans are like incredibly fucking provincial about this sort of thing. And it's like they want Batman to be the only... They want him to be the only, I guess, superhero or vigilante or whatever you want to call it, active in Gotham City. And it's like, guys, Jonah Hex has made frequent stops in Gotham City. That's something he's kind of famous for. Ditto Alan Scott. I mean, you know, I realize this is kind of a kind of a, a, a strike to a lot of Batman fans' fucking egos and stuff. But guys, you need to understand Batman... Strictly speaking, has hasn't really had too much of a monopoly on Gotham City, you know. So I don't know. It, it's it, it's it's kind of hard to to not see that as a little bit of a bow in the in the direction of those those Batman fans who I guess their delicate fucking sense of order and balance would be just completely fucking destroyed by any notion of Batman not being the only guy in Gotham City. It's just fucking retarded. You know, it's stupid. But whatever. That's the direction that Loeb obviously wanted to go, so there's really not a whole lot that anybody can do about it. So I'll just move right along and just kind of bypass... Because I'll be honest with you guys, this entire fucking flashback, because of the fact that I can't separate it from this kind of provincial attitude that a lot of Batman fans have, I'm just going to fucking bypass it altogether because this thing just kind of pisses me off. But anyway, so we get this little moment where uh, grown-up Tommy and grown-up Bruce are driving around through Metropolis together and basically just catching up a little bit because it needs to be said that once Bruce's parents died, well, he pretty much checked out on, on Tommy, right, and their friendship. And not necessarily out of malice or anything like that. It's just at that point, Batman had other... Some might say bigger things on his mind. And so anyway, it's 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 just something that's worth worth mentioning, I suppose. <sighs> so anyway, moving right along, we get a little bit of a flashback to what happened in Gotham City between Batman and Catwoman after they broke their kiss. And Batman basically gives a tracking device uh, to Catwoman, basically saying when you need it, activate it by pressing it. And they, what do you want to bet that this is setting something up later for the story? So anyway, neat little, neat little bit of exposition here. But also, if nothing else, if all of the, the sunshiny, bright skies and shiny buildings and whatnot of Metropolis are getting to you as a Batman fan, well, we do get a little bit of a glimpse of Gotham City here in this flashback uh, to Batman and Catwoman after they finish tongue wrestling. 
and if, if you need it, well, here it is. So, anyway. Now, moving on from there, we get into a part of the story that a lot of people... A lot of people point to this moment here in the Daily Planet as the moment when Hush becomes a little bit uh, fan uh, fiction-y. You know, where it's almost like a, a, a bit of fan fiction where... Someone is basically trying to work in as many Batman tropes as they possibly can, irrespective of, I guess, how appropriate it really is. And I kind of had to count myself among them at one point. And ultimately, what served to change my mind here was the fact that since I tend to view this as the series finale for my era of Batman, to me, it actually makes a lot of sense to want to work in as many of Batman's greatest hits as you possibly can. And so suffice it to say, I find this less troublesome than what's going to be happening in some of the future stuff I'll have to talk about. But I'll get to that when I have to get to that. For right now, it's it's kind of weird, or not weird, it's kind of amusing, at least to me, that Bruce and Lois are kind of doing this back and forth with one another where they're kind of flirting with one another, but each of them have a different agenda that they're working toward. Lois is turning on the feminine charm to kind of play into Bruce's reputation as a bit of a womanizer so that she can get information out of him. Bruce, for his part, is playing the part of the sort of vapid, self-obsessed, and kind of scatterbrained uh, billionaire, just kind of schmuck, specifically so that he can parry Lois's attentions and push him away from what he's really there to do, you know? And so that works for me. It's not being done for no reason. Both of them have an agenda and they're couching it in kind of flirtatious overtures for toward one another, but neither of them are actually serious about it, you know? And I do find it kind of, eh, how shall I say, mature of Clark that he's not He's not really threatened by that, and I don't think he would be. You know, I mean, fucking, the guy's Superman. I mean, you know, what what does he care about what Batman is or isn't trying to do with Lois when, dude, I can shoot fire out of my eyes. I mean, there's nothing for you to threaten me with, you know? And I just, I, I kind of dig that. So, anyway, moving right along, we get this little moment with Batman and Talia in LexCorp Tower. And I don't know if I'm ever going to talk about this era properly of Superman and the Burn Age. So for those of you who are curious to know what I think of Metropolis and this vintage, guys, I got to tell you, I it's like on the one hand, I kind of like the idea of LexCorp Tower having this sort of monolithic sort of design to it. It's kind of like the monolith from 2001. And from i guess from a design standpoint and what that suggests about Lex Luthor for building a place like this in the first place i guess i'm okay with it but guys the simple fact of the matter is i prefer the giant glass tower that's shaped like an l that was present i think to about like 2000 2000 or 2000 basically whenever it was that the Brainiac 13 virus finally came to Metropolis. I believe that's when that changed. 
And one of the things that changed is the design and structure of LexCorp Tower. And I just don't like that as much. You know, I there's something about this that just doesn't sit right with me, you know? So, in any case, basically, Batman and Talia sort of have their moment with one another. And Talia, she, does, she doesn't play a huge role in the story, at least at, at this juncture. It's not really too much of a spoiler to say, yeah, we're going to see her again before all is said and done. But for right now, she doesn't have too much of a role to play. She's basically here to tell Batman, basically give him information that he can't get necessarily anyplace else. And so that's really the, the main point of it. But she also, she makes a point of saying that there's something different about you. I'm not sure I like it. Meaning she can somewhat see that Bruce's heart is starting to belong to Catwoman. And of all people, Talia maybe isn't going to like that very much. So anyway, following that, Batman meets up with Catwoman on top of the elevated train. They basically have an information dump with one another. What have you found versus what have I found? And there comes a moment where Catwoman says, Ivy took control of my mind. She made me do things I may have been prone to do, but that's my decision. No one gets to violate me like that. And again, there's a sense in which Catwoman could be talking about the theft. You know, Catwoman's natural inclination may very well have been to steal the money and then keep it for herself. You know, that is a possibility. But another layer of interpretation here is that Poison Ivy took control of Catwoman's mind. And when Catwoman says that she made me do things I may have been prone to do, but that's my decision, she may actually have been talking here about rape, right? Now, like I said in the last episode, you know, when I say that this kind of fits Poison Ivy as a character, I don't mean that to sound like I'm somehow fucking pro-rape, because how could you be? So, you know, I don't want to hear anything about that. But I'm going to try to put this delicately, but... Catwoman, of all characters in Batman's rogues gallery, starting from about, I guess, the time I was like 13, 14, 15 years old around there, my reading of Catwoman was that she's bisexual, you know? And I don't mean that in that bisexual chic kind of way. I mean actually bisexual. And if you think back to things like like Holly... Or I think the other companion's name, I think her name was Arizona. If you think back to Holly or Arizona or any of the other companions that Catwoman has had over the years, it not only is kind of easy to believe that she's bisexual, but you could also kind of think that her type is somebody who's in her early to mid-20s, you know, and around there, maybe skewing closer to early 20s, irrespective of how old Catwoman herself is. And this didn't seem as arbitrary, like sometimes, you know, you, you, you discover things about these characters, not to get specific, but you discover stuff about these characters that just seems, it's just fucking pandering, guys, it really is. You know, it's arbitrary, it's forced, and it is just not organic to the character in any way whatsoever, you know? So there's that. But then now and then, you know, stuff like this with Catwoman comes up where, you know what, I could see it. You know, I don't need a whole lot of imagination. And 
in relation to that, what Catwoman could be talking about here is that, yeah, she may have been prone to doing this or doing that with Poison Ivy, if you catch my meaning. But Poison Ivy didn't even give her a chance to say yes or to say no. She just took it, which by definition is rape, isn't it? So, like I say, I mean, it could just be that Catwoman is referring to the theft. Poison Ivy made her commit an act of theft. And yeah, Catwoman may have been naturally inclined to do something like that, but ultimately, stealing or not stealing is Catwoman's decision and no one else's. That could be what Catwoman's talking about here. But that's not the only way to look at it. And that's the point. So, anyway. From there, Catwoman meets up with Poison Ivy, who instantly realizes what what the deal is and uh, basically backhands Catwoman sends her flying and then Catwoman and again this kind of feeds into my little thesis here Catwoman says that was the last time you ever lay a hand on me and again I mean it just kind of makes you wonder what did Poison Ivy do to Catwoman exactly you know and it doesn't ever really get said because at that moment, Batman swoops in, saves Catwoman from the Venus flytrap or whatever the fuck this thing is that's attacking Catwoman here. And at that moment, Superman, now under Poison Ivy's full control here, swoops in and you kind of got to figure shit is about to go down big time. And I said in the last episode that you could interpret it that... Poison Ivy not only raped Bruce in The Long Halloween, and she not only raped Catwoman here in Hush, but she may also have raped Superman, because she goes out of her way to say, my Superman. Now, she could mean that in the kind of creepy, dark sense of, of saying that, I suppose. But another way of looking at it is that when she says, my Superman, what she means is, under my control, you know? Um, I control his mind, he will do what I say. He's basically my puppet. She could mean that, but that's, again, not the only way of looking at it. So it just, it sort of makes you wonder what exactly did or didn't happen with this stuff. And honestly, it's a—it's one of those things where you kind of have to question, how much of this do you really want to know? And at least for me, the ambiguity of it, I'd rather the ambiguity stay there because at least then I can imagine that there's not a rapist type of connotation to all of this it doesn't have to get like that fucking dark you know but if you want it for whatever reason if you want it for Poison Ivy's character purposes for her super villainy just whatever to have been rape if that's the way that you choose to view this well I don't really relate to that but you've got you've got a leg to stand on I'll, I'll say that so, that is basically the end of the issue. And as it happens, it's also basically pretty much it in terms of the two comics that I wanted to talk about this week. Now, if you're any good at math whatsoever, you should pretty well figure that next week I'm going to be talking about Batman number 612 and number 613. But that's for next week. As, as it is, that's it for me this week. So, bye everybody. I will see you next week.
so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.